You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Well, thank you very much, Scott, for your kind words. I appreciate that very much. And thank you, church family, for the opportunity and joy and privilege of being with you today. When you're, when Scott and your pastor both first contacted me about coming, I was very happy to do so and grateful to the Lord that it has worked out for me to do so. And I'm looking forward to our time together uh, today, tonight, and Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I love what I see in this church. love the way you do the, uh, your music, the praise and worship time there. And we had a wonderful first service, and now here we are in this service, and you're here, and the Lord is here. That's the most important thing. And so we're going to find ourselves in His presence and see what He wants to do. Now, before I begin, I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer that will begin today. We we'll want you to pray this prayer every day during this series of meetings. Would you do that? Here's the prayer. Lord, do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do. Lord, do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do. Today, by virtue of the magic of time travel, we are going to go back in time, about 3,000 years back in time, to a little sliver of land about 175 miles long, about 50, 75 miles wide. And so I'm going to snap my finger, and when I do, we are going back in time. And we're there. Across the thick, lush grass of the palace lawn fall the shadows of trees transplanted from distant forests. Fish pools fed by artificial streams are perpetually ruffled with golden scales darting from water cave to water cave. In the royal garden, I see beautiful flowers spangling their rainbow colors everywhere. Peacocks brought back from India strut the walkways. Deer stalk the parkways. In the distance, I hear the neighing of 4,000 horses in the royal stable. Standing in blankets of Tyrian purple, chewing their bits over troughs of gold. In the royal garage, 1,400 chariots await the visit of a dignitary just to be brought out on parade. His mansion would make the homes of the lifestyles of the rich and famous look like paupers' houses. In the royal cellar are thousands of flasks of the world's finest wines waiting to be uncorked at his weekly, wild, extravagant parties. His financial portfolio is no less impressive. Gold, $680 million. Silver, $1 billion, $200 million. He's a shipping tycoon. His ships traverse the oceans, 
bringing back countless priceless treasures that adorn his palace walls. He is a, an architect and a builder. Seven years constructing the great temple in Jerusalem. 70,000 craftsmen, 80,000 workers, 3,300 master masons. He's a true Renaissance man. He's a musician. He has written 1,005 songs. He is a philosopher. He has also devised 3,000 proverbs. He is a scientist. He has studied ichthyology, ornithology, written on those subjects, and his favorite subject is botany. 700 of the most beautiful women in the world call him husband. 300 more concubines, all 1,000, awaiting his beck and call to fulfill his wildest sexual dream and his wildest sexual desire. Everywhere he goes, he is followed by more paparazzi than Elvis, Princess Diana, and Michael Jackson all combined. He dines at only five-star restaurants, shops at only the best bazaars. He is Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, and Hugh Hefner all rolled into one man. His mother is the beautiful and ravishing Bathsheba. His father is the great king of Israel, David. You know his name. His name is Solomon. And today he has promised us a preview of his latest and his last book. In fact, he's given a copy to all of us as we've come together to hear from him today. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. You've been provided a copy in your hand right there from the king himself. Ah, I see the palace doors as they open and the royal entourage is making its way here to the platform. I see the king, his gaunt form and his royal robes. He looks much older than I remember him. And as the entourage approaches, we lean forward on our seats and then we stand in honor of the king as he makes his way up to the platform and over here to the podium and microphones are pressed into his face. He motions for us to be seated and he surveys the crowd. And then he lifts his head toward heaven and he closes his eyes and then he lifts his as he lifts his hands with eyes closed and head torn turned toward heaven he suddenly exclaims hevel havelim hevel havelim hakol havel vanity of vanities vanity of vanities all is vanity what did he say I nudge you. Did you hear him correctly? Did I hear him correctly? Is that what he said? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The richest man in the world. 
The man who has a thousand of the most beautiful women at his beck and call. The man who has everything, who's traveled everywhere, who's world-renowned, the wisest man who ever lives. The man on whom the world has exhausted itself. The man for whom the world is not enough. Did I hear him correctly? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Unbelievable. What does King Solomon mean when he says vanity of vanities all is vanity? When I was a little child, I would hear my grandmother and my mother talk about a piece of furniture in my grandmother's bedroom called a vanity. I never really understood what they were talking about. Vanity, that's of course conceit about how we look when we stand in front of the mirror and we brush our hair for 30 minutes, right? That's vanity. Carly Simon taught us all about vanity when she sang, you walked into the party like you were walking up to a yacht, your hat strategically dipped below one eye, your scarf, it was apricot. You had one eye on the mirror as you watched yourself gavot and all the girls dreamed that they'd be your partner and you're so vain. So she sang about Warren Beatty, we think, vanity. Hevel is the Hebrew word. It occurs 38 times from Solomon's lips and his pen in this book. Vanity, the word in Hebrew is hevel, translated vanity. What does that word mean? It's a word that means mist, vapor, smoke, zero, nothing, nada. It's a word that means something that appears briefly, temporarily, and then it's totally gone. It's what's left after you pop a soap bubble. Vanity. Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2. Notice the intensity of it. In Hebrew, when they want to express the superlative, they double the noun. We talk about something is good, then it's better, and oh, that's the best ice cream. That's how we do it in English. But in Hebrew, you would double the noun. And so Solomon says, vanity of vanities, it expresses the intensity of it. It's the Hebrew superlative. It's Solomon's way of saying super vanity. And then he says, look, all is vanity. Not only the intensity of it, the universality of it. All is vanity. Your car is vanity. Your house is vanity. Your bank account is vanity. Your wardrobe is vanity. Your looks are vanity. Your education, your knowledge is vanity. Your life is vanity. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 38 salvos of pessimism pour forth from the pages of Ecclesiastes as Solomon describes all he has and all he's ever done by this word, hevel, vanity. And the same is true in your life and my life as well, right? When it comes to the word vanity and what the Bible is talking about, what Solomon is saying here, it's important to understand five things about this word, transitoriness, the the shortness of life, the brevity of life. It's a breath, it's a wisp of of vapor, it's a puff of smoke. That's the meaning of the word. But wrapped up in this word are five things. It's a word that describes the absurdity of life. There's a certain absurdity of life, an inconsistency in life, right? 
You have wolves, but you have lambs. You have sharks, but you have kittens. You have roses, but you have poison ivy. You have beauty, but you have ugliness. You have life, but you have death. That's the way life is, isn't it? When we think about it. And the longer we live and the older we become, we begin to see the certain absurdity to it. Number two, the word describes an irony of life. Vanity of vanities. Life is ironic. There's a certain inequitableness about life. A senselessness to it all. The cheater gets the high grades. But the honest student makes a C+. The embezzler gets the Lamborghini. But the honest business person... Two years before retirement, company lays them off in order to save money and hire somebody at much less and not have to pay you full benefits. There's a certain irony to life that just doesn't make sense. You may get that job because of your skin color. Or you may not get that job because of your skin color. Vanity. The irony of it. Number three, the word describes the incomprehensibility of it all. No matter how you try, you can't figure out why things happen the way they do in life. You think you get a handle on it and things happen and you say, why? The eternal question, why? Why did my child die of cancer? Or why did this happen? Why that? And why me? And why not them? And what's this? And why that? The limitation of reason to penetrate the murk of life is the reality that we all live with. Vanity, the incomprehensibility of it. Then there's the randomness of it. The evil prospers, but the good die young. What's that about? Everything is so random. When my girls are grown now, but when they were teenagers, I had to learn a new vocabulary word because I would say something at the dinner table and one of my girls would say, Dad, that's so random. And I'd have to figure out, what are are you talking about? I mean, I'm a... I've got a linguistics degree. I know what that word means, but I don't have a clue how my daughters are using that word. That's so random. And that's the way life is. It's so random. You can't figure it out. You can't explain it. There are things that happen and things that don't happen. Things that happen you don't want to happen and things won't happen that you do want to happen. And then finally, there's the futility of it. Vanity of vanity. The futility ultimately of life. Have you discovered that Mother Teresa and Osama bin Laden both go to the same place? It's called a grave. It doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, how young you are. You're all, we're all headed to the same place. One day we're going to die and the person who bury us will die and the shovel used to bury us will turn to dust. That is the futility of it all. You're going to die. I'm going to die. I may die before I can leave this service or die before I leave Arkansas at the end of Wednesday night on Thursday morning when I go back. And and if I do, I guess, Pastor, you'll have to have my funeral service here. And so you'll have my service and you'll find me a nice cemetery and you'll bury me there and you'll sprinkle, say some kind words and sprinkle some dirt over my casket and then we'll go over to somebody's house you'll go to somebody's house and eat potato salad (laughs) and you'll talk about me for five or ten minutes and yeah it's great to hear that guy preach that was that was fun on ecclesiastes and yeah i think uh, he's married to a lady named kate and i think he lives over in texas and i think maybe he's uh 
teaches at Southwestern Seminary or whatever, and then suddenly somebody will say, oh, look at the time. I've got a hair appointment at the salon, and somebody else will say, you know, I've got to go to the grocery store, and somebody else will say, how about them cowboys? And I will be forgotten. And so will you. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Life is supposed to be a symphony, but it's not. It is a cacophony. There's the disappointment of pursuit, but then when you do achieve it, you can't enjoy it. That's the way life is. The disappointments of life. Like the fingernails dragged down a blackboard. Solomon's Ecclesiastes talks to us about the vanity of life. Solomon is a man who needs some antidepressant pills. Do you see that tattoo on his shoulder? Look carefully. It's the word hevel, vanity. That's what Solomon is all about. Been there, done that, gotten that t-shirt, tried everything. No meaning, no purpose in life. Vanity. No future. He's like a blues singer on the mud-slung docks of the Mississippi River. I searched for wisdom, but the girl done turned up wrong. Said I searched for wisdom, but the girl done turned up wrong. Gave me mighty fearful contusions. Make me toss all night long. Vanity of vanity. Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. Dwayne Thomas was the most valuable player of the 1972 Super Bowl when the Cowboys won the Super Bowl that year. And when the announcer, when the interviewer came at the end of the game to interview him, he asked Dwayne Thomas this question, how does it feel, Dwayne, to play in the most significant game, in the ultimate game? How does it feel? And Dwayne Thomas said this, If it's the ultimate game, why do they play it again next year? Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So Solomon sought meaning in his life. And he sought that meaning and purpose in five major areas. When you read through Ecclesiastes, you will discover there are five major areas, all of which are introduced in chapters 1 and 2 and then talked about throughout the book. Five major things, five major areas that Solomon sought meaning and purpose in his life. The first is wisdom. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, having been gifted by God with that wisdom and with that knowledge. And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, look at verse 16. Here's what Solomon says. I said to myself, I've magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. My mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. I set my mind to know wisdom and madness and folly. I realize this also is striving after wind. Because, verse 18, in much wisdom there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. At the end of Philosophy Avenue, Solomon found a sign that says dead end. He tried wisdom. He tried knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge are wonderful to have, and Solomon's not knocking that, but he's saying that if you attempt 
to learn everything you can learn and put all of the eggs of your basket in the in the basket of knowledge, all your eggs in the basket of knowledge, that can't get you through life. It can't bring meaning and purpose in life. Now look, I'm all for knowledge. I'm an educator. I have an earned PhD. I teach people. That's what I do. Knowledge is important and wisdom is important. But knowledge and wisdom cannot bring you meaning and purpose in life. And that's what Solomon is saying. He says in verse 18, more, the more you know, the more you hurt. You take an uneducated man, and he'll steal a watermelon from a boxcar on the train. You give him an education, and he'll steal the railroad. Education is not where it will never bring you meaning and purpose in your life. Solomon tried wisdom. Then he tried women. Oh, did he try women. 1,000 of them. You, you talk about sex. He had all of it. And so he says in chapter 2 in verse 1, I said to myself, come now and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But what does he say at the end of verse 1? It too is futility. What does he say in chapter 2 in verse 8? At the end of that verse, he said, I had the pleasures of men, many concubines. All the sex in the world could never bring him fulfillment. We live in a culture today that is sex-saturated. You cannot sell a tube of toothpaste or a car or anything in between without putting a half-dressed woman in front of it. Sports Illustrated Magazine Swimsuit Edition sells 15 times more just from the newsstands alone, not counting mail, just on newsstands alone, sells 15 times more than any other individual edition of Sports Illustrated. It's 11% of SI's total annual profit, that one magazine. It's nothing now but soft pornography is what it is. The subscribers to Sports Illustrated are given the option of either having the Sports Illustrated issue or if they prefer not to have that, they can get an extra special edition of Sports Illustrated. 99.3% of all men who subscribe to Sports Illustrated turn down that offer. They want their swimsuit edition. Pornography is one of the greatest ills and sins of our land, and it is no different within the church, the statistics show, than it is outside of the church. So Solomon said, I'm going to live it up. I'm going to have my one-night stands. i got a thousand girls, most beautiful women in the world to choose from. And he says at the end of that, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So Solomon went from women to wine. And in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with, my, with wine. So Solomon had weekly crazy wild parties that he invited all the rock stars and all the entertainers and all the sports figures. And you read all of this, by the way, in the Old Testament as a description of Solomon. It tells you how much money he spent on his weekly extravagant wild parties. And so Solomon became like so many of us. 
He said, if I can drink this, shoot that, smoke this, snort that, it's going to bring me what I need. But Solomon discovered what some of you have discovered and so many others have not discovered that at the end of an empty bottle is an abyss of insanity. So Solomon tried wine and it didn't work. Then he tried wealth. Solomon amassed an unbelievable financial portfolio. He made all the money in the universe. And yet it brought him no peace no purpose, and no happiness. He owned all the real estate. He had all the gold. He had all the silver. He had it all. He was the envy of everyone. But in the end, he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So Solomon did what some of you are doing. He said, all right, I'm going to try work. And he threw himself into his work. Solomon became a workaholic. You read about it in chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. He tried to do everything. He tried to build. He built the great temple. He was a shipping tycoon. He threw himself into his work. But in the end, he said, you know what? You work hard, then you get old, and then you have to leave it all to children and grandchildren who don't have a clue which end is up, and they waste it all. And so he, was a work, he became a workaholic. Somehow that's going to get me the pleasure that I need in my life. And in all of these five areas, Solomon sums it up in verse 17 of chapter 2. And he says, so I hated life because everything is vanity and striving after wind. You ever get to the point where you hate life? Now don't look at me like a calf looking at a new gate. Don't you look at me that way, like you're so pious and spiritual. No, you always have the joy of Jesus. Uh Uh-huh. You ever get where you hate life? Because of the dull routine and the boredom of it all? This is what Solomon found. He sailed the high seas of experience, and he made many notes, and he made many charts and maps to show us something of the journey. He also took his digital camera with him. And Ecclesiastes is a series of snapshots and a portfolio of everything Solomon did and everything he everything he tried. So here's click, here's Solomon the gourmand, click. Here's Solomon the professor, click. Here's Solomon the playboy, click. Here's Solomon the scientist, click. And he took all of his pictures and he posted them on Facebook. And we all clicked like on his pictures. Solomon said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The world promises more than it delivers. The book cover is more interesting than the content of the pages. And the more he was gratified, the less he was satisfied. Like so many of us, the more we are gratified, the less we are satisfied. And Solomon discovered the grand delusion of life. The grand delusion is pursuing life without God. That's what Solomon discovered. Under the sun is a phrase that occurs many times in Ecclesiastes. Life under the sun, day by day, dull routine. Life under the sun. You try to be happy with these five things and none of it works. And you conclude, the older you get, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
And we see it in our culture. We see it in our literature. Chesterton said, all is vanity, life is dust, and love is ashes. Jean-Paul Sartre, the philosopher, said, we are bubbles of nothingness on a sea of emptiness. Mark Twain said, man lives in a world where he's honored for an hour and then he's forgotten forever. Thomas Gray said it best, our hearts are muffled drums beating funeral dirges to the grave. So we see it in our literature. We see it and hear it in our music. So Elvis Costello sang, nonsense prevails, modesty fails, grace and virtue turn into stupidity. What shall we do with all this useless beauty? Maybe you'd rather hear it from Bob Dylan in his song, Idiot Wind. Now everything's a little upside down. As a matter of fact, the wheels have stopped. What's good is bad. What's bad is good. You'll find out when you reach the top, you're on the bottom. Or maybe you prefer Metallica and their song, Fade to Black. Life, it seems, will fade away, drifting further every day, getting lost within myself. Nothing matters, no one else. I've lost the will to live. Simply nothing more to give. There's nothing more for me. I need the end to set me free. Or maybe you prefer Courtney Love's band and their song, Use Once and Destroy. It's the emptiness that follows you down. It's the ache inside when it all burns out. Or maybe you're a Bono fan. And you'd rather hear it from you too. You too. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Or maybe you'd rather hear it from Lady Gaga in her song, Vanity. Midnight at the glamour show on a Sunday night. Everybody drink a lot of whiskey and wine. We dance like no tomorrow. We're on burlesque time. But everybody's got to work tomorrow at nine. Vanity. Pictures in magazines, movie screens. Vanity. Mirrors and cameras. So many beauty queens. Vanity. It is so good to be fabulous and glamorous. We love ourselves and no one else. Vanity. I'll save you the time of reading you the lyrics from Christina Aguilera's song entitled Vanity, a song that you or maybe your teenage girls have listened to in the past or present. The lyrics are actually so filthy that I would have to edit them if I were to read them to you. Vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. We see it in our advertising. Calvin Klein. So when we were, those of you that are baby boomers like me, so when we were younger, what did he sell us? He sold us perfume and cologne, and what did he sell us? He sold us obsession. And then as we got a little older, he began to sell us eternity. And then, more recently, he began to sell us escape. And now, to our children and grandchildren, he's selling the brand Contradiction. Because we live in the postmodern world. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You will remember the MasterCard commercial. Oh, it's embedded in your mind. You can't get it out of your mind. There are some things money can't buy, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. But then the most egregious of all, about 23 years ago, I was stunned when I first saw the commercial on my television screen 
And the voice announcer with the picture of the beautiful car said, Our most impressive safety innovation yet. A Volvo that can save your soul. Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities, Solomon says. All is vanity. But now, time out. Be careful. Solomon does not speak against knowledge, nor is he speaking against true pleasure. He's not saying you shouldn't enjoy bluebell ice cream or buttered popcorn or sex in marriage. That's not what he's saying. But Solomon is writing to the student who believes that her whole life hangs on that next exam or that next paper that she has to write. Solomon is writing to that businessman who feels that he has got to climb that ladder in order to have meaning and purpose in life. There's nothing like Ecclesiastes to immunize us from the epidemic of taking life too seriously under the sun. So Solomon rubs our noses into the crude reality of what life is like under the sun apart from God. Here's what life is like, Solomon said, apart from God. Nothing you learn or do will ever give you happiness, will ever bring you meaning and purpose. Solomon forces us to think with the mental cap of a secularist. Here's what life is like if you want to try to live it without God. This is what you're going to find. This is what you're going to face. This is what you're going to experience. The horizontal approach to life, life without God horizontally is meaningless. It is only the vertical life that is lived in connection with God through Jesus Christ that makes any sense at all. All of us take the attitude, so many take the attitude, if I can do it, experience it, have it, buy it, learn it, or go there, I'm going to be happy. If I can just get away and get to Hot Springs, Arkansas, I'll be happy. No. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You know what many people today look, at, look think about God, what God is like? He's like a high-calorie dessert. You can take him or leave him. That's the way God is. That's the way people who don't know Christ, that's how they look at God. God's like a high-calorie dessert. Well, you, you can take him or leave him. Vanity. You know what life is like? It's like a puzzle. Occasionally, Kate and I, in order to unwind, in order to relax a little bit, we'll, we'll get us a puzzle and pull it out on the table and work the puzzle. Have you ever worked a puzzle and then found there were some pieces missing? And so you were mad and you threw the pieces back in the box and you went back and you gave them an earful at Walmart or wherever you bought that puzzle and they gave you another one. You come home and there are still pieces missing. You get mad and you go back and you throw that and every puzzle you buy, here's what life is like. Every puzzle you buy, every box, you come home, open it, you start working and there are eight pieces missing, ten pieces missing, twelve pieces missing. That's what life is like apart from God. It will never make sense. It will never come clear. You will never have meaning and purpose in life if you are attempting to live your life that way. So Solomon begins, Hebrews 1, 2, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's the front part 
of the bookend. And then the last bookend appears in chapter 12, verse 8, and he repeats the same thing. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And everything in between, Solomon says, is a house of mirrors. Life under the sun is fragmented until you look at it from God's point of view. We begin and proceed as a series of question marks in Ecclesiastes until Solomon comes to the last chapter and the last two verses. And there in Hebrews 12, 13 and 14, the question marks become exclamation points. So look at what Solomon says. Solomon has given us his travels on the road of error in order to shorten your way to the road of truth. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. Solomon may be a pessimist, but he is not an atheist. He knows that God is real. He knows he has strayed from God. And that's the first step to coming back to God. The missions conference that we are having, the focus on missions this week, and evangelism, and the importance of all of that is a recognition that people apart from Christ, they may have everything, but they actually have nothing, vanity. Those who are down and out, those who are up and out, and everybody in between. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And they are on the road to a Christless eternity. Unless they come to Christ. Unless they hear the gospel of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does Solomon do? Look at it. 12 verse 13. The conclusion. Hear the conclusion. Literally there in the Hebrew, actually in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, he just basically said, the end. Here's the conclusion. In other words, what Solomon says here, mic drop. Mic drop. You've tried wealth. You've tried women. You've tried being a workaholic. You've tried all of these things. And Solomon says, now, mic drop. Here's the conclusion. Fear God and do what he says. This applies to every person. Mr. Pessimist is not Mr. Atheist. Fear God and do what he says. This is the duty. This applies to every person. Not only that, fear God and do what he says. Why? Because you're accountable to God. Oh, but God doesn't know what I'm doing. He doesn't see what I'm doing. He doesn't know what I'm thinking. I'm cheating over here. I'm doing this over there. I mean, God doesn't really know. He's, he's a big granddaddy in the sky. He doesn't see any evil, doesn't hear it. Oh, yeah. Look at verse 14. For God will bring every act, look at that, every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Look at that. Solomon says you better fear God there's the point of departure, and do what he says. There's the pathway you travel in life. You better fear God and do what he says because you and I are accountable to God and everything matters. Everything matters. Look at it. You're going to give an account. God's going to bring everything into judgment. Not nations only, but individuals. Not open actions only, but secret actions. Not actions only, but thoughts. Not good works only, but evil ones as well. The whole nine yards, everything God's bringing us all to accountability. Therefore, fear God 
and do what he says. Because at the day of judgment, for those who do not know Christ, and at the great white throne, or the great white throne judgment, for those who do not know Christ, and the Bama seat, the judgment seat of Christ, where those where our works are examined, our salvation is not in jeopardy, but where our works are examined and we receive war, rewards or not for how we have lived. At both of those places, the judgment of unbelievers and the accountability for believers, there will be no one who can be a no-show. No one can play hooky. Everybody will have to give an account. So fear God and do what he says. This is the whole duty of every person. This is the end of the matter. You see, Solomon is like is saying the same thing that Jorge Bernano said. He said, in order to have hope in that which does not deceive we must first lose hope in everything that deceives. And you see, some of you, especially the younger ones listening to me now, some of you are just thinking, oh, that poor old guy, I don't know what he's talking about. Oh, you better listen to Solomon. You better listen to Solomon because you think that right now youth, youth's desires are going to be fulfilled by age and you're going to get on the other side of age and discover that those desires are never going to be satisfied. You're going to live long enough if God lets you. It's going to be vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And you better hear what Solomon says when he says, Fear God and do what he says. This is the duty of man. Here's the mic drop moment. Fear God and do what he says, for God will bring everything into judgment. Everything good or evil. In other words, if you put New Testament glasses on, which is what Solomon is asking us to do, then he's saying, believe in Christ, repent of your sin and believe in Christ, and then live for Jesus. What did Jesus say? If you love me, what? Do the things I command you. Don't come into this building and tell this preacher and this praise team up here and sing like you love Jesus when you're not living in obedience to Jesus. You are a liar. Don't do that. Jesus said, if you love me, do what I tell you to do. That's how he knows you love him. Anybody can get up and sing about loving Jesus. No. It's obedience. This is how you overcome the vanity of life. This is how you go from vanity to victory. This is how you discover meaning and purpose in life. It's all in Jesus. Jesus himself said in John's gospel, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Like the old hymn says, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. Have you discovered it? Do you know it to be true? Is he real in your life? Most of you, that would be the case. You know Christ as your Lord and Savior. You hear what Solomon says. He's taken you on the journey, shown you all of his mistakes. And now to those of you that are younger today, he pleads with you, don't make the mistakes that I made. Come to Christ. Come to Jesus now. Live and serve the Lord Jesus now. Because that is how you turn vanity into victory. You see, there's a danger. And the danger is you're going to stay too long at Vanity Fair. You're going to stay too long at Vanity Fair. Billy Barnes wrote about it in his song, have I stayed too long at the fair? I wanted the music to play on forever. Have I stayed too long at the fair? I wanted the clown to be constantly clever. Have I stayed too long at the fair? I bought me blue ribbons to tie up my hair. 
But I couldn't find anybody to care. The merry-go-round is beginning to taunt now. Have I stayed too long at the fair? The music has stopped and the children must go now. Have I stayed too long at the fair? Oh, mother dear, I know you're very proud. Your little girl in gingham is so far above the crowd. No, daddy dear, you never could have known that I would be successful, yet so very much alone. I wanted to live in a carnival city with laughter and love everywhere. I wanted my friends to be thrilling and witty. I wanted somebody to care. I found my blue ribbons all shiny and new, but now I discover them no longer blue. The merry-go-round is beginning to taunt me. Have I stayed too long at the fair? There's nothing to win. And there's no one who wants me. Have I stayed too long at the fair? Jesus wants you. He proved it. He lived. He came. He lived. And he went to a cross to die for you and me. He paid the penalty for the sins of all of the world. He took death on his shoulders, paid the price for our sin. And by virtue of his resurrection, his atonement, and now his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, his exaltation at the right hand of the throne of God, he has the authority to turn your vanity into victory. But you've got to come his way. You've got to repent of your sin and by faith believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of you in here have done that. Most of you watching me online, you've made that decision perhaps. But there are some of you in this building, on this campus, and some of you watching me right now online, you've never made that decision. You need to. Jesus Christ is the answer to your problem. He is the salvation of your soul. Would you come to him here in this building in just a moment? I'm going to pray. And while they sing, pastor and others will be here at the front. This is an open opportunity for you in the balcony, on the lower floor, wherever you are. This is your opportunity to come to Christ if you don't know him. Come to Jesus today. Secondly, come and get involved in this church. Maybe you've been visiting and thinking about joining today. You feel God's leading you here. Come and tell the pastor or the counselors that and become a part of this fellowship. Or you may just want to come and begin praying the prayer. You may just want to kneel here at the front somewhere. That's all right. You don't necessarily need to talk to anybody, but you want to just say, Lord, now do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do. And that become your prayer throughout this week as we encounter God in his word. Again tonight and Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. Whatever God leads you to do, make that decision today. Holy and Heavenly Father, we pray right now that your will would be done. The gospel is clear. Jesus loves all of us. I pray that those who do not know Christ would now come to him. And I pray that Christians would honestly say, Lord, do in me anything you need to do, whatever you need to do, in order to do everything through me, you want to do. Lord, deliver us from vanity to victory today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and would you come? They're here. Prayer altars here. Pews can become prayer. Chairs can become a prayer altar. Right now, while they sing, while they play, you come. Would you do it? It's your time right now.